Crispin here on the North Shore Vineyard Church audio podcast. Today on the podcast, we have part two in our series, Good News People in a Bad News World, where we're looking at what it means to live out the gospel as a community. So today we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter two, uh, the words of Paul to a church that he planted saying, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, walking in unity, and how walking in unity really Uh, is one of the greatest signs to the world that Jesus is King. Certainly not stuff for the faint of heart, but uh, something we ought to strive for. So let's go ahead and head to the Talk North Shore Vineyard Church in downtown Covington. Thanks for listening. Pretty sure if Chris Farley ever learned to play the drums, he'd uh, looked like that. Um, I do have a point to that clip here in a minute, um, and some of you will stick around just to see how I can weave this into a message. But um, <laughs> anyway, we'll see. Um, today we're going. We've been in a series called "Good News: People in a Bad World." Bad, bad news world, and. Um, we're looking at what it means to be gospel-centered people, people who live out the gospel, who are an alternative uh, society to, to, the, to the principalities and powers, the way that our world organizes itself. And so in this series, we're just going to be looking at different gospel passages throughout the New Testament. Now, one thing I've tried to point out week after week here is that Oftentimes, the version of the gospel that we've been handed in modern Western Protestant evangelical culture is the gospel that says Jesus came and died on a cross so you could go to heaven when you die. And that's kind of the standard version of the gospel that you, that you hear in most churches, in most programs. But the reality is that version of the gospel is not found in the New Testament. Now, what Jesus came to do, it does have to do with the hereafter, but the real, uh, the real meaning of the gospel, it was the announcement that through the incarnation, the cross, and the resurrection, Jesus Christ has become king. The gospel is not good advice on how you can get to heaven. It's the announcement that Jesus Christ is king. Now, there is certainly a reaction that is called for. But we're, we're talking about an actual event that has actually happened, and the world is a different place because Jesus is king. And now we can live as subjects of that king, and we can live out the reality of that kingdom that will once, you know, someday come in its fullness. We can begin living out that reality right now. Yes, what Jesus did will affect our afterlife, but Jesus never talked in terms about the point that he came was so you could go somewhere else when everything's over. His kingdom was about 
right now, right here. And I tell you, that's a lot more exciting if you're a Christ follower, um, that, that, that actually God has something for us to do right now. We're not just hanging on, trying not to be contaminated before we can get you know, raptured out of here or something. But actually, this world actually matters to God. And how we live right now actually matters. So today we're going to look, be looking at one of my favorite passages. We read it during worship. This is Philippians 2, and I'm breaking it up into... Um, a couple of different parts here. I'm going to cover verses 1 through 4, and then we'll move on to 5 through 10. So Philippians 2, starting verse 1, so says, So if you have, so if our shared life in the king brings you any comfort, if love still has the power to make you cheerful, if we really do have a partnership in the spirit, if your hearts are at all moved with affection and sympathy, then make my joy complete. Bring your thinking into line with one another. Here's how to do it. Hold on to the same love. Bring your innermost lives into harmony. Fix your minds on the same object. Never act out of selfish ambition or vanity. Instead, regard everyone else as your superior. Look after each other's best interests, not your own. I wanted to start with that little clip that we saw a minute ago. What was wrong with that clip? Nothing. That was awesome. <laughs> okay. Uh, instead, of, instead of speaking in terms of what makes it a great YouTube clip, let's talk in terms of music. <laughs> if you were at that American Legion Hall or whatever it was, I don't know if they were a wedding reception, but say you invited that band to be your wedding reception band, um, what would you say was wrong with that particular version of Sharp Dressed Man? <laughs> The drummer is, he's just so over the top. Like, even when the guys are doing the guitar solo, the camera stops looking at the guy doing the camera solo to look over his shoulder at the guy going, <laughs> you know, gyrating. And, and, and I mean, the, the guy is just so over the top. Now, here's the deal. He's a good drummer. I mean, he's got chops. There's nothing wrong with his skill level, but he's not a team player, is he? He's not playing with them. <laughs> It's all about, man, I'm going to show, I, I cooked up something special for these guys. <laughs> this is my moment to shine. I've been waiting for this. And poor guy, I was actually looking. Uh, if, <laughs> if you look at this YouTube clip, it's had 30 million something hits. And now this guy, he's got his own, uh, you know, um, website. And he's like exploiting it like, you know as seen on YouTube by 30 million people. And he's doing drum clinics and stuff. He's going all over the world because of this. Teaching people how to be horrible drummers. <laughs> he's a good drummer, but he's not playing with everyone. I will contrast that with something that I got to see this week. Uh, Thursday, I went down to Jazz Fest, and um, for the first time ever, I got to see Alan Cra Allison Krauss in Union Station live. Oh, yeah, they're good. If you don't know who Allison Krauss is, you've probably heard her music. Her and her band did a lot of the music on the Oh Brother, Where Art Thou soundtrack. They're, they're bluegrass. Um, but it's interesting seeing a band like that at Jazz Fest because most of the bands at Jazz Fest, they've got drums and horn sections and guitar players, electric guitar players, and it's rocking. And here they were closing out the second largest stage at Jazz Fest on acoustic instruments, which is a weird thing to see at a festival when you've got tens of thousands of people out there. And it was dobro and violin or, or fiddle um, and Acoustic guitar, upright bass, and banjo. And they all sang. And 
It was just amazing. Because when you're playing an acoustic instrument, I play some acoustic guitar, but it's not as forgiving as other instruments because it takes a lot of technique to get the notes to sound right and to not have your frets buzz and, and to, 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 to project. And it, it, it's not like you can hide beside, behind some kind of effect <laughs> or hopefully the drummer will cover you up. You're just kind of exposed and out there. And the thing was, I remember this one song that I saw the other day. I don't even know the name of it. But Alison Krauss, and, and her, by the way, she's got the most phenomenal dobro player, Jerry Douglas, who plays with a lot of other people. But just I didn't even realize that that was the guy in her band. But anyway, they did this song where they started off, and she's playing this very complicated uh, melody on the violin, and he's doing the exact same thing. They're in perfect sync. He's playing it all on the dobro. She's doing it on the violin. And then they get into the song, and then the guitar player starts playing. He takes, it, he takes the baton for a moment. He starts doing a solo, and they back him up, and then it moves over to the banjo player. They get behind the banjo player, and then she starts singing, and then the harmonies come in. And by the end of the song, I was just like, dang. That was amazing. But you know what was amazing about it? When I walked away from that Allison Krauss show, I wasn't thinking of any particular solo instrument, even though they were all just stinking amazing. Some of the best musicians I've ever heard live. What struck me was the power of their songs because they were all playing together. Jerry Douglas could have said, hey, this is the Jerry Douglas show, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play this dobro like you never heard. And he could have just taken over like that drummer because he's good enough. He could have just, just done the whole thing, you know, for an hour. Any one of those musicians could have made it about themselves, but instead they played in unity and they chose to get behind the songs. And the emotional impact of that was, you know, I, I can tell you being in bands since I was a teenager, that doesn't happen often with musicians because... We musicians, we always think what we're playing is the most awesome thing. <laughs> and we got egos that get tied up in our identity. And, and, and sometimes when we musicians play, we, we don't think about what other people are playing. We're just like, this is my moment to shine. I'm going to use my three licks. And it's going to be amazing. I'm going to rock your face off. <laughs> I've had a lot of those experiences and they're fun for you as a musician, but they're not fun for anybody else. But I've also had a few experiences where I've been with a group of musicians who, who just are in sync with one another. They're listening to one another, and they're all getting behind the song and thinking, how can we make this song amazing together? And when that happens, if you're in the crowd, it, 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 you feel it. You feel it when everybody gets together and when everybody's on the same page, you feel it. I think that's one of the reasons why going to hear an orchestra is so moving because everybody's playing their part. If you're not playing your part in an orchestra, you get kicked out real quick. In a lot of rock bands, you can hit a few bad notes and it's okay, especially when everybody's drunk. <laughs> but you can apply this to anything. You know, I mean, I know Rachel's in here. She does uh, theater productions. Where's Rachel? What's you in right now? Still Magnolias. She's working on that production. And I would say the same thing probably happens in a theater production. If everybody's playing their part, it's great. But if all of a sudden Rachel shows up one night, she's like, I got a little something special. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tweak this a little bit. 
and, and, and decides to just go off script. And, and you know, I'm, I'm, I've, I decided to interpret this, this character a little bit different. Um, then all of a sudden, the, the, the stage production becomes about her and not the production. And the thing is, whenever you're, whether you're watching a band play or watching a theater production or even in other areas of life, when we experience these moments where human beings are in unity, it stirs our hearts. I'll give you a couple examples that are out of the music world that, that for those of you who are not musicians, can, can understand. Remember when the Saints went to the Super Bowl a few years ago? Anybody remember that? Who that? Um... It was, I remember hearing Garland Robinette one Monday morning on WWL radio, and he was, he was just blown away. It was like after a playoff game on a Saturday night, and he's like, there was no violent crime in the city over the weekend. He said, it was just amazing down by the Superdome. Like, everybody was happy. Even criminals stopped, gave up crime for the weekend. <laughs> It was lovely. And he was just going on and on. Like, this is the most, like, anything can happen. This is like, it just represented, like, if this can happen in New Orleans, anything good can happen in New Orleans. And if you were around New Orleans at that time, it really felt like that. Like, what, what can stand in our way? <laughs> we just had momentum. And everybody was on the same page. Nobody was fighting. Everybody was happy. Or do you remember the week after, it was a few days after the, the September 11th attacks, you know, the kind of the darkest, some of the darkest days in the history of America. But I remember seeing uh, the, the, the both houses, or the House and the Senate, gather on the uh, steps of the Capitol, Democrats and Republican, and they gave us a unified statement. And then they closed by singing America the Beautiful. Y'all remember that? You remember seeing that? I remember seeing it at that time, and, and it gave me chills. And it wasn't because they were great singers. <laughs> but it's, these guys were fighting a few days ago. <laughs> they were doing everything they could to undermine each other and to defund their programs and block their legislation. And it was just, you know, the typical gridlock that you see in this country. But all of a sudden, they'd come together. And there was that same sense of if these guys are together, if Democrats and Republicans are on the same page and they're all together unified, what can stand in our way? Now, the truth is that that unity, we know what happened with it in Congress. It, it was short-lived. It lasted a few months. And then they went back to the same old things. We know that in New Orleans, after the Saints won the Super Bowl, a few months after uh, the crime rate got back to where it was, but I think every time we see one of these moments, the reason it stirs our hearts so much is it shows us a picture of the kingdom of God. It shows us where we are going. One day, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord. One day, there won't be anything that divides us. And the church is the one group of people that get to live out that reality right now. Now, I think when we come to a passage like this, we mainly just ignore it because we're like, dude, you can't really mean that. <laughs> like, walk in unity with one another, having the same mind and heart. Like, I mean, that sounds great, Paul, but, <laughs> I mean, do we have to just wait till heaven? Because it seems hard. As a pastor, I do a lot of helping people through relational issues, whether in marriage or different things like that. And I got to tell you, 
Getting two people <laughs> to agree is hard, right? <laughs> For any of you who have been married or who are currently married, it's, it's tough to get two people who love each other and are committed till death do us part to agree, to agree on things. But what happens when you add another couple of people, another 10, 20, 30, 40, 50? What happens when you get a church, 150, 200 people? How can we actually be expected to walk in unity, to be on the same page? I mean, after all, there's some 40,000 Christian denominations in the world today. And guess why there are so many? Because they can't get along with each other. (laughs) You know? We just, ah, you know, I don't agree with you on that doctrinal issue. I don't agree with that. And so we keep splitting and dividing. But unity is at the heart. You know, unity is one of the biggest things that Paul talks about in every one of his epistles. He talks about how the unity of the body of Christ is a testament against the principalities and powers of this world. It's a sign of the kingdom. It's a sign of God. And anytime people can see a group of people who are, are connecting with one another that are male, female, rich, poor, d- across racial lines, social lines, and they're still getting together, that's, that, that's a sign that God is in their midst. Don't shout me down now. So Paul talks about a few things. In the first part of the verse, he gives us the motivation for unity, for thinking, bringing our thinking into line with one another. The first thing he says is that you should want to live this way, he says, because you know, and all Christians should know, the comfort that comes from being belonging to the king's family, from being in Christ, in the Messiah. There's a comfort. You know, the, the, the first time in my life... As an adult, when I surrendered to God, and I said, God, I don't know why you take me. I have screwed my life up. But if you'll take me, I'm yours. And, and, and that day, when I was like 20 years old, suicidal, in my living room, just ready to give up or run away. That moment that I, I, I said yes to God, I immediately felt the comfort of being in Christ. Maybe today you're here and you've never felt that comfort before. It's real. It's real. Deciding to, to live in Christ than, than instead of living outside of Christ. There's comfort there. Secondly, he says, in addition to the comfort that comes from belonging to this family, there should be a growing sense of love within the family, a love that sustains and cheers you from day to day. And I've loved... You know, we started this church about five and a half years ago with about 20 people and some lawn chairs <laughs> in this little building that used to be our children, that's our children's building now. We met there, and it was, it was like a tailgate party initially. It looked like that. But you know what I've loved seeing over the years? I've loved seeing that how God has brought a community forth and how people are loving one another and taking care of one another. See, I get to see these things a lot. Some of you never get to see these things. And I just, I'm so blessed that I get to kind of have a window to some of the things going on. I see people taking care of one another. You know, people helping each other with, with financial things, watching each other's kids. You know, giving of their resources and their time to help people that are going through difficult times. Giving of their actual gifts. 
you know, the, their, their job that they do, offering their services for free to help other people out. And I love it. I love seeing how, how not, we're not just living as a bunch of isolated individuals now. We're living as a family. I love seeing that. I love at the end of the services. I've seen this a lot in the last few months where, you know, people without asking permission just start praying for one another. I walked in here one day like, you know, church was over and I see six ladies down here at the front and they're, they're, they're talking to each other and praying for each other. I'm like, we, we weren't doing an altar call right there. I didn't say y'all pray for each other. No. I love that. That's signs of the, the love that's growing in the community. Thirdly, as the Spirit lives within Christians, directing and strengthening them, and as they see one another also being, so to speak, spirit carriers, they can hardly help the sense that they should work together in a single direction. You know, I was hanging out with some guys a while back, and uh, we were just, we get together informally here and there to smoke cigars down in a creek, and... Uh, Sometimes our conversations are just about silly things like conspiracies and politics and music. And... But occasionally we have those moments where it just gets real. And on this one particular night, I, I loved, and this has happened several times, but, but I, I loved, you know, some, somebody will bring, an, you know, an issue to the, to the front just say, man, I'm really struggling in this area. And I love it because as a pastor, sometimes if I do a small group, I, I, I almost dread doing a small group because when it comes time to have a discussion, people automatically look at me like, what do you think? And I'm like, you know, I, I would like to participate in the discussion, but I don't want to lead it. <laughs> what I love seeing in this little group of guys that's been meeting together for a couple of years now, smoking cigars a couple of times a month, is when somebody has an issue now, everybody shares from their own brokenness, their own experience, their own uh, capacity of having the Spirit of God. And there's something so beautiful in that because it's like, it's not like one person has the answers. We all have the Spirit of God, and God is using us all. And this is what Paul is saying, that, that, that is this capacity that as we recognize that it's not just the, the pastor that has the Spirit of God, but every single one of us. When we start recognizing the Spirit in one another... It should compel us to unity. Come on now. When we start recognizing that every person in here is a container for God's Spirit, it ought to make us work together and head in the same direction. Finally, all of this should produce the natural human motions of affection and sympathy. And if with all this you still don't want to work at living in unity with your fellow Christians, then something is seriously wrong somewhere. <laughs> Maybe you're doing this Christianity thing all wrong. Maybe it's in your head. Maybe you're disconnected from other people. I, I was telling a friend the other day, I said, you know, uh, after being a pastor now for five and a half years, um, I've got a lot of compassion on pastors who do stupid things, stupid, self-destructive things, and just ruin their lives. I've got a lot of compassion on them because I realize, like, I think, but for the grace of God, like, you know, there go I. 
And I told my friend the other day, I said, the only thing I think that keeps me from doing something ridiculously stupid, because I get discouraged every now and then. There's, there's a few times a year where I'm like, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. <laughs> but I think the one thing that keeps me going is I've got people in my life. I know so many pastors who are absolutely alone in their vocation. They're completely separated from people because they feel like they have to be. They have to be on a pedestal. I'm thankful that I've got people in this church I can be totally honest with. And they can see my junk and they're like, okay, you know, whatever. Like I, don't, I don't freak them out. <laughs> I've got people outside this church. Maybe if you're trying to do this thing alone, maybe that's your experience that you don't feel like walking in unity because you're, you're disconnected. But understand that this is the reality that should be in your life. So if you don't feel that way, then there's probably something wrong somewhere in there. And I'm not saying, I'm not blaming you, but there's probably a better way to do this Christianity thing. So Paul gives us the focus of the internal, uh, the internal uh, motivations. If our shared life in the king brings you any comfort, if love still has the power to make you cheerful, if we really do have a partnership in the spirit... If our hearts are at all moved by affection and sympathy, then make my joy complete by bringing your thinking into line with one another. So that's kind of the internal motivation. But then Paul moves on to the sharing of the gospel. I said each week we're going to see the gospel shared. Here is a classic passage on the gospel. He said this, This is how you ought to think among yourselves with the mind that you have because you belong to the Messiah Jesus, who, though in God's form, did not regard his equality with God as something he ought to exploit. Instead, he emptied himself and received the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of human. And then, having human appearance, he humbled himself and became obedient even to death, yes, even the death of the cross. And so God has greatly exalted him, and to him is... Favor has given him the name which is over all names, that at the name of Jesus every knee within heaven shall bow, on the earth too and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus the Messiah is Lord to the glory of the Father. See, the people in Philippi, they, they were in a region called Macedonia, the people who got this letter from Paul. And Macedonia was kind of famous because it was the place that Alexander the Great had come from just three, 300 years before. Alexander the Great uh, was so successful in conquering the world that by the age 33, he conquered most of the known world in, in that part of the world at that time. Just phenomenal. And actually, he, he became, people began to talk about Alexander the Great as if he was a deity, they began to call him the son of God. And the Greeks, you know, if you know anything about Roman history, Romans, they borrow from the Greeks all the time. So when Rome comes along uh, a little bit later, Rome borrows all the Greek gods and stuff. And they actually take this Greek concept that was applied to Alexander the Great, calling him the son of God. And they applied it to Augustus, Caesar Augustus. And, and there was actually coins that you can find in inscriptions that said, Augustus, the Son of God. Salvation comes through Augustus. Augustus is Lord. You would find inscriptions that say that. And so they had been trained to think of, when they would hear these terms uh, about Lord or the Son of God, they, growing up in that culture, they would associate that with Augustus or Alexander. 
And there's a certain way that that type of leadership works. Augustus and Alexander, how did they conquer the world? By the end of a sword. They, they come in and it's like, bow down and worship your emperor. But Jesus Christ, being equal with God, fully God, he did not consider his equality with God as something to be exploited. He didn't use it to his own advantage. What does that mean? It means that, that Jesus, even though he was God, he didn't use the God card. He faced reality the way that you and I face reality. He lived as one of us. And he was obedient even to death, death on a cross. And God vindicated him on Easter morning. He defeated evil, and he was vindicated, and now he rules and reigns. That's the gospel, and it's right here in this passage. And so Paul says, we ought to not just be motivated by these things internally, but we are also made motivated by that which we look at. Let's look at Jesus. Let's face him and immerse ourselves in his reality, and it will determine the direction of your life. You know what you, what you look at is going to determine where you go? I mean, you get that just like walking in just a natural sense, right? But the truth is, with your life, whatever you are focusing on is going to depend, uh, de- determine where you actually head. And Paul, kind of like the writer of Hebrews that we talked about last week, tells us to look at Jesus, consider him, have the same mind as Christ, and this will direct our lives. Um, in Luke 22, I won't read the whole passage, but I'll just tell you this real quick. Uh, the, Luke and John both tell the story of the, the night where Jesus celebrates the Passover. This is the night before he goes to the crucifixion. And, and somehow, in the course of dinner, the disciples start arguing over who's the greatest, you know? Can you imagine that meeting, you know, uh, and Peter's like, Psh, I got you all I'll beat. I walked on water. And they're like, Psh, yeah, for like five seconds, dude. <laughs> and John's like, well, I gave, I gave Jesus the sack lunch that he, he multiplied into 5,000 loaves and fishes. And, you know, they're, they're arguing about this. And, and Jesus finally, after hearing them arguing, he says, look, the, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, but it shouldn't be, the, it shouldn't be that way with you guys. In fact... The greatest among you will be the one who serves. And Jesus says, who's the greatest? The one sitting at the table or the, guys, the, the one waiting tables? He says, the person eating at the table. And he said, yet, I'm among you like the waiter. What Jesus is saying, by the way, guys, I'm the greatest here, okay? <laughs> but what have I been doing since I got here? I've been serving. You want to know what the power of God looks like? It doesn't look like Rambo. It looks like Jesus. What's interesting is John captures the same story, but he gives us some more insight that really helps us understand what Luke is getting at. In John 13, in the midst of dinner, Jesus gets up, and he, he, he takes off his outer garment, and then he comes over to every one of his disciples with a bowl, and he begins to wash their feet. Now, let me tell you something. In that day, particularly during Passover week, a festival week, imagine like Jazz Fest or Mardi Gras in New Orleans. There's people who've come from all over, and the footwear that you happen to wear is just flip-flops. 
And on these streets, you don't just have people, but you've got donkeys and sheep and goats and all kinds of animals. You, you, you know where I'm going with this. So your feet would not just be dirty from walking around on sand. They would have all kinds of other gross stuff between your toes. This is, this is freaking you out yet? Um, and Jesus gets down and he washes his disciples' feet. Now, that was a job that, that even the Jewish people didn't want to do. If you had a Gentile servant, that would be his job. He would have to wash feet. So Jesus takes the, the humblest place, and he goes around and washes his disciples' feet. And when he's done, he says this, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet. I don't think Jesus was like actually instituting foot washing. Some people have taken it there. I think he was just saying, the way that I've served you, you serve one another. That's where the power of God is. It's not power over, it's power under. And here's the deal. We can't get in unity by just wanting to be in unity. I've been around pastors who are like, hey, we all need to get together. It's like, yes. But unity for the sake of unity doesn't really last doesn't last in Congress. It doesn't last with the saints. It rarely lasts in a band. <laughs> but when we are looking at Jesus, that's the key. When we are immersing our lives in Jesus, unity will actually happen. And when we do this, we testify to the principalities and powers of this world that there is a king, and it's not Obama. It's not Putin. It's Jesus. And his kingdom's totally different because he doesn't force people into it. He doesn't intimidate people. He doesn't coerce people. He loves them. He heals them. He serves them. One last example that I want to say on this before we take communion. is that the example of Jesus that we see in this passage in Philippians is one of, of obedience and trust. Jesus was obedient even to death. He trusted his life to the Father that he would be vindicated by the Father, and he was. And I put these three little questions down there. What would it be like for you to trust God with your whole life? Can you imagine that for a second? What would it be like if you could actually trust God with your whole life? Would it be a little bit easier to be in unity with other people? Maybe. See, I find that the one thing that keeps me from being in unity is I'm holding on to something. <laughs> my agenda, my opinion, the way I think things should be. And what would a community of people look like that were all living lives of trust and obedience? You know what I think it would look like? Jesus said this. They will know you are my disciples by your fancy church buildings. They will know you're my disciples by the coffee that you serve. They will know you're my disciples by the amazing programs that you have. They will know you're my disciples by the, by the awesome worship band and the lights and the smoke and everything else that goes into it. 
They'll know you're my disciples because you live in awesome houses and drive awesome cars. No, they said, You'll know, they'll know you're my disciples because of the way that you guys love one another. By the way you love one another. I think the single biggest testimony to the world about Jesus is the way that we love one another. The way that we walk in unity, walk in humility, the way that we value others other than ourselves, the way that we serve one another, that is a testimony that there is a God because that's such a rare thing to see in this world. So we're going to close this morning. Um, Mark and Tracy, I didn't, would y'all like to give communion? Now, like who's going to turn it down now? Would y'all like to serve communion? Put down your own agenda. No. <laughs> this morning we're going to take communion and if you've never taken communion here before basically the way that we do this anybody is welcome up here you just take a, a piece of the bread and you dip it in the cup the bread represents Jesus' body broken for us the cup represents his blood shed for us the new covenant and as we say here quite often Jesus said do this in remembrance of me while I think he, he did talk about doing this, this actual thing we're doing, let us not just take the bread and the cup. Let's live what the, what the bread and the cup symbolize. Let us be broken and poured out for one another. Let's live what the reality of these symbols point to. So I'm going to invite you up. As I start singing, we're going to just sing that song that we sang in, in, in the earlier part of the service. And you... Uh, once you take communion, just, just join me in worshiping the Lord together. You can feel free to come up whenever you want.